Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome back to Kitchen Club with me, Serena Lau, and my lovely friend, Sarah Malcolm. Kitchen Club is the podcast that brings you conversations from our kitchen table. Each week brings a new guest, a new area of expertise, and a new recipe created using our guests' three favorite ingredients. This week's guest is the wonderful Karen O'Donoghue, founder of the Happy Tummy Company, and absolute fountain of knowledge on all things grain, soil, food, bread, and just a brilliant human. The Happy Tummy Bakery School in East Sussex was brought to life to teach us how to use food both as preventative and prescriptive medicine. Specializing in bread for people with digestive health issues, the school produces recipes to boost gut health, the immune system, the nervous system, and mental health a lot going on (laughs) so much going on if you would like the recipe from this episode which is just absolutely delicious then we will be posting the recipe on our brand new patreon page which we would absolutely love your support on we'll leave the details in the show notes and we would just love to invite you to join our virtual kitchen club over there we'll be posting the recipes there each week so do sign up and you can enjoy the recipes as and when you like. So here is the fabulous Karen O'Donoghue on Kitchen Club. Hello, Karen. Welcome to Kitchen Club. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. It's such a pleasure to have you. I was just saying before we start recording how how fortunate I have to I feel to be connected with you, Karen, and just from watching your stories and following you on Instagram I just already absolutely adore you so it's so nice to have you (laughs) oh thank you that's really sweet Sarah I wish we were meeting in person I know I'm I'm way better in person by the way I'm really (laughs) I am like this part of my life will be remembered as the most uncomfortable part ever (laughs) Karen let's let's start by diving into your three favorite ingredients that you gave us um, to play around with can you remember what they were olive oil cheese and sourdough bread yes Mm. (laughs) I feel like you don't even have to think about those things like that my tongue absolutely freaking love them can you go into you went into quite a lot of detail about the cheese yeah um, your specific what is it about those three ingredients or the cheese in particular I mean I know we're going to get onto bread 
So the cheese <laughs> in particular, I just, I've always had a love affair with cheese. I think when I was really young, I started eating blue cheese quite early. Like when I was four, I started eating blue cheese. Mm. So I think um, I love like, the. it just feels really good in my stomach and it feels so pleasurable. And for me, food is of course about functionality, but it has to be pleasurable and I think cheese is one of the most pleasurable foods in the world Mm. Um, and I think particularly a soft cheese whereby you can eat the rind as well is just so um, local to me there's a farm called Golden Cross um, which is run by a family of six and they have a herd of goats and a herd of sheep and they make all raw cheeses and they have a, a cheese called Flower Marie, which is an incredible raw yew cheese. And um, I serve it at the bakery school all the time. And every single student has become obsessed with it and pretty much goes straight from the outdoor kitchen down to the farm to, to buy some. Oh. Um, it's just it's just delicious. It's gooey. It's flavoursome. It's great for breakfast. Yeah, absolutely oh. adore it. They've smashed it. That sounds so divine. I'm going to have to come and eat it with you. Definitely. You're making me hungry because I haven't had any breakfast yet. Oh my God. I'm I'm craving you? cheese now. <laughs> um, and what yeah. about the olive oil, Karen? Is that... Um, yeah, is- so I think, um, I guess, you know, uh, I, I've, all, again, I've, all, like, I, I feel very good on fats. I, I love fats. Fats make up a big portion of my diet. I think... Um, I, I just, again, I love the flavour. It feels indulgent, but also really, really good for me. Um, and I love the variety that you get between a Spanish, a Greek, an Italian, whatever. Um, but oil on bread with a little bit of salt, a bit of pepper, for me is just perfect, perfect yeah. food. Mm. Yeah, can't go wrong at all, oh. ever. Um, Serena, would you like to tell us what you've made for Karen, what recipe you've created? I will. So Karen, when I got your ingredients, I was like, oh my God, soul sister, sourdough cheese and olive oil is my absolute heaven. And because I'm always to making recipes here my boyfriend like gets really excited depending on what the guest gives us and when I said to him it's cheese bread and oil he was like yes I love this um so (laughs) we made you and he really enjoyed it we had a manchego sourdough toasty with rocket pesto and roasted red peppers yum like delicious lunch sorted today (laughs) and normally we'd cook it for you which clearly we can't do sadly but we'll send you the recipe um but because you said that you liked a hard sheep's cheese from spain is manchego is sheep's cheese right yeah yeah, amazing yeah so that's why we went for the manchego and the pesto is very nice when you have leftovers to have on pasta and things so we hope you enjoy that oh yum and pesto again one of my faves (laughs) yeah. <laughs> good Serena you're gonna have to make this for both of us or I'm just gonna have to make it myself I mean I'm capable of that <laughs> we'll do it as soon as we're allowed to all see each other again I'll make it for both of you yes please uh, <laughs> and we'll you. have to do it with some of Karen's nice bread Karen will you tell us a bit about the happy tummy company please yeah how so like how you started and yeah so um I was born with genetic IBS um uh, but luckily, I my parents were horticulturists, and we grew up on a farm. And I guess I spent my whole my whole childhood, you know, digging saplings into the ground, and you know, seeing their life as it were um, happen over the years and the seasons. And um, so I've always had an affinity with where our food comes from and the soil. And I got really so. This sounds funny. 
especially to vegans. But I, when I was younger, I had a real problem with killing plants. Um, and when I mean kill, I mean pick a plant and eat it. Um, <laughs> because I was so at one with them. You know, for me, we were surrounded by cows and a dairy farm. Da, da. Um, and he, <clears throat> so much of the farming I saw meant that the animal continued to live. You know, we milked the cows, mm-hmm. like blah, blah, blah. But, the, you know, a head of lettuce was picked and I ate it. And um, so I was very aware of plants being a living thing. Um, and when I was about four years old, I became obsessed with bread because um, the way we were um, farming grain back then, you know, there was lots of, um, you know, collecting the seed and cross-pollination and all that kind of stuff. And I, I guess I saw these grasses as maybe going dormant for a bit, but then kind of having a research in, in the spring. So um, I became really obsessed with grain and I started making bread and playing around with different recipes, probably between the ages of four and 10. Um, And the bread I always made for myself always felt good. You know, I had full, I was full. I had really great and sustained energy. Um, My mind felt good. I felt I had clarity. But anytime I ate shop-bought bread or even bread from a bakery, to be honest, because they were using lots of yeast back then, I didn't feel well. I was constipated. I'd be spending a half an hour in the toilet. So I very quickly from a young age discovered that you know when you respect the soil and 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 you eat grain that comes from your locality you feel good and if you don't do that things go askew Um, and my mom got sick when I was very very young with cancer and I guess you know seeing her on the radium and the chemo and everything um, had an effect on me and as a family we, we made a decision to just eat organic food because uh, mom's reading at the time discovered that, you know, that did have an impact on your health. Um, and so I was really lucky. Like my dad was a scientist and mathematician, you know, I just grew up with a very scientific brain, but also a very intuitive, maybe healing uh, personality because of my mom. And, you know, I, I would do massages with her and stuff like that. Um, and I guess when my mom did pass away, I made a decision that, I will build a brand that is all about preventative medicine as opposed to prescriptive. Um, and I believe in both forms of medicine. I think ibuprofen is a wonderful drug, but I also think, you know, eating an organic sourdough um, plays as equal a part, if not sometimes a heavier part in our health yeah. um, mm-hmm. and keeping us strong and healthy. Um, and it just kind of spawned from there. In my early 20s, my IBS got really bad, so bad that I sometimes was constipated for three weeks at a time. Wow. Um, and I was in India one summer for five months just working. And uh, I, yeah, so I didn't go for a poo for three weeks. And on the third week, I was with my best friend, Sue. And I was like, Sue, I know if I, if we can find a bar in this like Muslim area and I have two glasses of wine, I know it's going to help me. And fortunately we did. It was like the heavens opened. <laughs> and, and what a feeling. That makes sense from like the relaxant effect, but also the phenolic compounds in wine are phenomenal. And at that time, our diet in India was horrendous. It was loads of white rice, just constipating stuff. Yeah. Um, and I was, yeah, working in London and basically my whole life I'd worked with entrepreneurs and I'd managed this TV show kind of highlighting entrepreneurial work um, abroad and um, had gone through an 18-month period of recipe development focusing on grain, using grain to alleviate IBS symptoms in people suffering with constipation or diarrhea or a mixture of both, which is also highly likely. 
um, using myself as a guinea pig and a few other people and friends in London at the time who were suffering really badly with IBS. And after 18 months, I created this chia teff loaf. And how I came up with the recipe was I basically took all the scientific research that was coming out on gut health and our microbiome at the time. And I applied a mathematical equation to how our gut bacteria like to eat. Then I took that mathematical equation and I put ingredients on top of that that would give me the um, right ratios of insoluble to soluble to prebiotic fiber, to dietary protein, to the various minerals and vitamins that are essential for like alleviating oneself of IBS. Um, and, and thus the chia teff loaf came about. Um, and literally overnight, I went from maybe going to the toilet once a week or once every two weeks to having two bowel movements a day. And that changed my life forever. Mm. Um, and Shortage House found out about it. They asked me to give a talk one morning. I went there Saturday, brought maybe 10 loaves of bread, talked to about 200 people. And after that talk, I was kind of convinced that at that time, which was maybe 2014, the world didn't need more doctors or dietitians or nutritionists. It needed food makers who were making good food and taking uh, food production seriously. So yeah, I decided to create the bakery back then. And that was, that was kind of how it all happened. It happened because this, these 200 people in Jordan type said to me, we're constipated. We've got IBS. We, we can't think properly. We feel like shit. Um, but this is the first thing I've put into my mouth that I don't feel bloated from. And actually, you know what? I'm starting to feel good about myself. Um, and for me, that was it. You know, my objective has always been to make people feel better about themselves and to be able to do it through a product that I've had such a love affair with my whole life felt like a vocation. Yeah, absolutely. What an incredible journey, Karen. I actually just got tingles around all through my body when you're telling that story. Aww. It's really like you have put your love your whole life into producing something that I mean, and you've done all the all the calculations, which just blows my mind to I, help I was, people. I was so lucky, Sarah, to like be the daughter of horticulturists. One being a math, math uh, you know, he he lectured in maths and science, and my mother was very spiritual. She was a devout Catholic, and you know, I guess you know, we went to mass growing up, and you know, when the the priest says and and have the bread of life, you know that that must have filtered into my consciousness in a big big way and then you know growing up like our business the family business was just behind the back garden so like you know we like I could walk out into the fields and plant a tree and yeah you know it's I recognize now how unique an experience it is to plant your whole life but yeah. also to be the product of someone who's very scientific but then my mother who was like a real healer in her own right yeah what an absolute privilege that that must have been to to grow up like that gosh I, would, I want and, a piece of that <laughs> and like the ceremony you know like when I when my students come here and I, I you know I do consultations with people the the biggest the biggest thing I think we can change is ceremony and that can be anything you know the work that you do Sarah you bring ceremony to everyone's morning like when I'm going through my period and I get on the Moody app and you're there and you 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 bring us through 15 minutes of ceremony with our body like ceremony changes people's lives and I think yeah. whatever about the food we eat whatever about the movement what you know, that's all just detail and if anything it's minute in in terms of its effect on oneself but just the ceremony you you making the bread, you giving it that time, you sitting down with a really excellent 
cup of coffee made from an AeroPress with good roasted beans that have just been properly processed. Like it's those 15 minutes Mm. in your day that just make your life a better place to be. Yeah. And the, and the art of, of that, of taking your time over what you're consuming, eating, drinking, breathing with it, like that is going to have such an incredible, you know, such good, that's going to have such goodness for your digestion at the same time. Um, and also we're going to like affect other people's lives for the better by doing that. You know, when my friends are around and they see how I live and they, you know, they, they fall into, into the same kind of rhythm and we all feel better. And then we're all happy and we're feeding off one another's energy. And I think as a community, like the community's consciousness, it does feed off what we do. And ceremony for me is key to that. Yeah. Yeah. When did you move everything to Sussex and Karen? When did you make that move? Uh, July 12th, 2019, 2019. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. I think I just, um, I'd lived in Hackney for many, many years and pre that in Maida Vale in West London. Um, and I think I just, uh, I guess I'm a bit of a reclusive character anyway. Like I love my own time. Um, but I think I was just, like I love London and it's a great great place but it wasn't feeding me well anymore it just I think um I was getting maybe like a little bit disheartened with like cafes being erected and places around banks saying 60 second salad and mm. I just there were there was parts of the city that were getting on my nerves and I thought if I stay here any longer I'm not going to serve myself or my community well anymore I think it's better now that I move back to the country and um and try and and lead a better life for me and my clients from there. Yeah, yeah. I wonder, making me think, I mean, because we were reading that two out of every 10 people in the UK suffer with IBS. And obviously that can manifest in so many different ways. It would be so interesting to see um, like a map of the UK and how that differs from city centres to, you know, being outside in in the countryside and how that meant manifests how IBS manifests in that way because we're in a city and we're you know so stressed and everything is fast paced and we're not eat, not taking our time to eat to yeah have this art of ceremony to nourish ourselves in that way everything's second second hand that that part of it is second hand so definitely it's just Sarah. an interesting thought but well for example the clients that I have that are living in the country I do this like kind of five week program with them and the country dwellers versus the city dwellers are able to make changes a lot quicker um, and they're a lot more effective. I think people that live in the city, the changes happen more slowly. And one of the biggest contributors to that is, for example, I was speaking with a lady this morning. She's got two apple trees in her front garden for someone with IBS. um, So if I ate a raw apple from a shop, I would feel diabolically hungry 30 minutes later, windy, bloated, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. If I pick an apple fresh from the tree and I eat it there and then, no ill side effects, it's been a pleasure to eat it. And she's the same. And I think, you know, so picking things fresh, the enzyme activity in that is so different to something that's been sitting on a shop shelf for days at a time. So I think certainly the energy of a city um, your nervous system, your immune system, everything's at play when it comes to IBS. But I think people that have access to fresher foods and can pick foods fresh notice 
a massive um, difference in their IBS versus someone that does not have that access. Yeah. Wow. Makes so much sense. Obviously with, um, with IBS and stuff, there's a bit, there's a strong link to mental health for a lot of people, I think, because I know that a lot of people find that their digestion goes up the wall when, when they're anxious and stuff. But surely also with the people you're working with, there's, there's a mental health aspect because the act of baking bread and kneading bread and stuff is very mindful. Do people find that that's, that's a really nice benefit that they see as well as improving their digestion? Definitely, Serena. I think um, with students that come here, there's a mix. There's obviously people that like just love the art of making with their hands and there's the people that just don't really get it and allow, for example, a supermarket to curate their health. Um, and, and most certainly, yeah, I'm all about don't don't change anything so if you have breakfast okay great you have breakfast so let's just change how you do that breakfast and 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 that's what the students do instead of relying on someone else to kind of create what they yeah they start making their own bread and yeah definitely the art of making and seeing actually the three days of work that goes into a sourdough bread completely changes people's life forever and I think just that one lesson alone showcases that that's how food should be made and, and, and that's how it should be consumed. Um, so using our hands, I think, is really powerful in maybe conquering any mental health demons. Um, but like you said so clearly, Serena, like the link between our gut and our brains is just, my gosh, it's so tight and so codependent that if you can feed one, of course it feeds the other. Um, and yeah, and I think, I think, you know, eating better and eating whole foods that have been through a fermentation process, um, gives you better clarity, gives you the ability to make decisions better. Um, and I think there's two approaches to IBS. You can completely focus on the food and that indeed will, will maybe calm the anxiety a bit and stuff like that. Or you can approach the anxiety with things like Sarah's movement and what Sarah does. And that also gives you clarity. And then maybe you've got the clarity to choose better foods. I often tell people, don't, don't, um, don't try and look at your IBS from both sides straight away. Pick the one that fits with your lifestyle. So for some people, it'll be like, okay, I'm going to get on the app every morning. I'm going to do movement with Sarah. And then maybe two weeks, three weeks, four weeks into that new kind of change of behavior, they now are in a place where they can choose better food because they have more peace of mind. They're breathing better. Their central nervous system is calmer. So that's one approach. Or you can go to the cookery school and start with that. Mm-hmm. But either which way, whoever comes to this cookery school, I tell them, get on the breath work, you know, swim in the sea every day, be kind to yourself, like get comfortable with yourself naked. You know, there's so many things we can do to feel happier, but go at one first and let that be the trigger for all the other disciplines. Yeah. So it's like a lovely holistic way to look at health. Definitely. It just does my head in when people try to do everything at once or when people are, you know, you've got people saying, oh, do this, this and this. But like the person's got a completely different life. You, I, I just think for me, everyone's living the best life they can. If they reach out to you for help and they say, hey, I'd like to do better or I'd like to poo more regularly or I'd like to have sex again 
and feel better about my body. Whatever they're saying, that is such a vulnerable thing for them to do and bring to you. And for me, I'm like, okay, great. You know what? Let's, the one thing we're going to change this week is instead of making instant coffee every single morning, which is your current ceremony, how about you buy an AeroPress, which is going to cost you 25 pounds. And that's what you're going to change this week. Mm-hmm. And then so much easier to approach change and approach happiness in a kind of, in a tree like way, you know, growing a branch one at a time. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. love that. What that's a lovely so image. I think we've all, well, well, if there's anything we can learn from, this year I mean we've been gifted this this time to to have more time to do these these things these making making your coffee slowly making your breakfast slowly so it's been that's a positive from it all yeah for sure there's the people that I guess haven't had that time at all as well of course for them that's why for me it's about you know it takes a village to raise a baby like that's why for all the people in Britain in the world right now that have not had a moment's peace, I think for the people that have had time to sit and dwell on their thoughts and dwell on what brings them more happiness and health, you know, it's up to those people then to like nourish those around them that haven't had that time. Mm-hmm. For me, that's what life's about. You know what I mean? Like just being vulnerable to your community and allowing your community to raise you up when you need. Yeah. Gosh, that's lovely. That's such a nice way to put it. Um, it must be such a such a massive sort of journey and and joy to re-educate people on on bread and what's going in going in our gut and what we're feeding ourselves with because bread has just been demonized for such a long time hasn't it and I mean it's yeah. it's the food that's been around since the dawn of time Serena laughed when I wrote that but it really has <laughs> I love it <laughs> you're so right though Sarah like I mean before we farmed animals in a big way like cereal production w- was kind of the first thing that we did to you know domesticate humans and, and and to allow us kind of expand as a race in Ethiopia in the Middle East like around the world so I think yeah grain grain allowed us to to become the humans we are today for sure um it's I did I went to this my brother did architecture in Dublin and I was going to his kind of final year show or whatever and one of the students did a, um, a project on shopping lists and and she showcased shopping lists from kind of the 18th century to the 19th to the 20th and how they differed and back in the day people generally bought like they went to the store with eight items and the first between one and three, it was always bread. Bread was always Mm. on that shopping list. And I also think bread is the thing that unites us as a globe. You know, wherever you go in Europe, in India, in Africa, wherever you go in the world, there is a bakery of some form. Yeah. So I think for me, bread is that food that unites us. And I think that's maybe why I saw bread as being the central product to number one, my bakery, and then the school, because it is that one thing that's universal and it does bond us. It does. Um, but yeah, to your, to your question, Sarah, about like it being wonderful to teach people about the art of bread making. I mean, I'm just in a way, I kind of feel like a, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm just teaching what, what we know to be true already. We just lost touch with it, I guess. Yeah. That just suddenly made me think that on a, on a global scale, I mean, bread is, so traditionally you have it at the start of a meal and I guess that's 
that must have started somewhere as a sort of um, digestive, like must have had that sort of quality, right? Otherwise, I mean, where did that come from? It's just, it's just an off thought, but. I think so. I think like across Europe back in the day, especially in the war times and pre-war times, I think, you know, grain has always been easy to get hold of. And I think like people even forget about wine, like back in the day, wine was a source of calorie and energy because, yeah. you know, grapes were grown across Europe, across across the ancient world. Uh, grain, grapes, anything that could kind of grow in, in dry soil and didn't need to necessarily depend on an irrigation system. And um, so I think back in the day, particularly around Europe, sometimes your diet was literally like your lunch and dinner was a big chunk of bread, maybe some olive oil and a glass of wine. Yeah. Um, and still sometimes uh, it is for me. <laughs> oh God, best meal you can have as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I was just yeah. thinking that's mad. It's never occurred to me that across all like all the different cultures, some people favor rice, some people favor potatoes. Pretty much every culture I can think of has some sort of bread. Absolutely, yeah. Mm. I yeah. know that's really obvious. I've just never really clocked that. Yeah, same. When we mm. were growing up, um, when we'd travel as a family, my, my parents were obsessed with visiting nurseries because they wanted to see what plants were growing. So growing up, family holidays were literally mapped out around nurseries and horticulture mm-hmm. visits. And when I go on holiday, they're mapped out around bakery and mill visits. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. My kind of like, holiday. Yeah, get the local baguette in, get the local flour and just go to town on it with some olive oil and wine. Could you tell us a little bit about Teff, please, Karen? Yeah, definitely. So Teff was the first grain ever domesticated for human consumption um, on the Ethiopian highlands back in around 8,000 BC. There's about 400 different genomes of Teff across Ethiopia. Um, one genome will do very well in the Bale Mountains, for example. Another genome will do better maybe just north of Addis, the capital. Um, so it's highly potent in that it's probably, the well, it's definitely the best grain source of prebiotic fibre, which stimulates the growth of our Guga bacteria, has been showcased to have the greatest effect on overall health as a fibre. Um, it's also incredibly high in protein, but just 100 grams of TEF gives you pretty much 50% your RDA of most vitamins and minerals like zinc, calcium, magnesium, potassium, iron, which obviously is hugely important for any females doing aerobic exercise that are burning through their iron storms and are finding it difficult to replenish. Um, So for me, TEF is actually quite, um, though it's the most ancient grain, it's actually quite a modern food because you do have so many people going vegan and vegetarian. You've got people exercising more than they've ever done before, particularly aerobically. Um, And you've got a lot of women that are fatigued, lethargic. And and that for me in in what I see in the school, it's down to them just not being able to replenish their iron stores quick enough. So for me, TEF kind of has two sides to it. Side A being its fibre, is just phenomenal at helping with constipation, IBS, um, and keeping you full. But the flip side of that is it is a brilliant, brilliant source of food for endurance levels. Um, And Manchester University did a study whereby they made 30% of a loaf of bread teff 
And they uh, scientifically proved that when 30% of a dough is test, your endurance levels go up at 25%. Wow, that's and, massive. And that explains, you know, the Ethiopian runners and the Kenyan runners that always do so well long distance. That is purely down to... Like in Ethiopia, you would eat teff three times a day as injera, which is their uh, 27-day fermented uh, kind of pancake bread, which is really phenomenal. Um, but I discovered teff probably around 2010, 2011, um, and it became very central to my recipe development based on it, its kind of potency. Um, and it's the one ingredient you can really introduce into your, li- into your life pretty quickly, and it can have an immediate effect. And the quickest way to for any of your listeners would be get some teff, make sure you buy it from the love grass because it will be legally imported to the country through the love grass and it'll mm. also be fair trade. Anything else will come from Holland, Spain, um, America and, and the genome that they can grow in those countries um, technically should only be fed to horses. So it's important to eat your teff from Ethiopia. Mm. Um, but if you soak your teff in yogurt, like that's the quickest way to consume it and it's a brilliant way or add it into a bircher or make it into a porridge but just get it into your diet and I swear to you two weeks in you're going to notice more clarity of mind your bowel movements are going to change your colon feels cleaner and I think any inflammation you may have around your body from injury from fatigue from low iron stores is going to really really change wow it sounds like a miracle food I was just about to say that. So, you know, pharaohs in Egypt were buried with teff because it's a miracle food. Gosh. And it's, I mean, I barely know know anything about teff at all. Hence why we wanted to ask you about it. But it's just not known. When you're soaking it in yogurt and and Bertram Museum and stuff, are you then eating it raw? Absolutely, Serena. Okay, so cool. And, and, and that's something that the Ethiopian, like, so I've spent time in Ethiopia, obviously. So when they, they saw how I used their ingredient, they were like baffled because for them, <laughs> they'll soak it for about 27 days and then they'll turn it into this injera pancake. It, it, they would never use the grain as a grain. They always mill it down by stone into a flour. Um, but, you know, it, it's cool that, you know, they saw someone else come into their culture and see yeah. a different use case. But so you, you you put it into whatever yogurt you have, probiotic yogurt, um, and you can leave it in the fridge for anything up to two weeks. So what I generally do is just put a big batch together, leave it in the fridge for two weeks. Obviously, as the days go by, it becomes more and more potent, which is even better. And similarly with the bircher, um, I'll make a big batch to birch on Sunday and then you know it's more and more potent as time goes on which is amazing um, but the best way for anyone to try out teff will be to use a combination of the grain and flour and um, so the 48 hour soaked teff grain scones I think if that's up on the website uh, anyone suffering with any type of autoimmune disease um, or is in need of an endurance food um, is now eating those and has it's it's been life-changing for those people which is great wow I feel like Serena, we, need, we need to make it an extra recipe for this episode yeah an I was actually butter. just gonna say Karen can you recommend a good Ethiopian restaurant in London so Sarah and I can go and try some injera yeah there is um I think actually I'm not I hope there was one on Essex Road that was phenomenal I'm not sure if it's still there. If you walked up and down Essex Road anyway, you, you, you'd see it. It's an Ethiopian Eritrean house. Um, there are, I think, maybe around St. John's Wood, maybe around, 
I think anyway, the north side of London, there are some, but when I, uh, yeah, I, could, I can't really think of any. Well, I'm actually cycling up Essex Road this afternoon. Oh, great. So I'm going to keep my eye out. <laughs> Brilliant. Okay, great. We can go together. Yes. <laughs> but, uh, I'd to, love to, to like, to, and also in Ethiopia, they, they do, they're quite plant-based. They don't really eat much meat. And so they would, a typical Ethiopian's diet would be, you know, this big injera uh, pancake. And then on top of it, they put a lot of stewed beans and a lot of like fermented greens and stuff. So mm. they're very intuitive around the way they eat. And when you go, it's evident because they're highly intelligent. You know, the way we talk about the weather, we're like, oh, the weather, they talk about starch and protein. So are like, oh, it's going to be a great day tomorrow. They're like, oh, make sure now you get your starch and your protein. Wow. Like they talk about climate, they talk about weather. It's fascinating. Wow. Let's talk about um, the grains in, in general, Karen, because obviously yeah. you're, a, you're a big lover as from an early age. Um, and the sort of importance about having a mixture of grains. Yeah. I mean, it's with anything that we eat, isn't it? Making sure that we are so diverse with our food and we're getting different things all the time. But how do grains or how can that mix of grains support us? And what what would you say maybe are like your top five grains? Okay, that's a great question. So my so back in the day, so pre the Industrial Revolution, the way we used to farm grains was a mix. So you'd have peas, you know, you'd have oats, you'd have rye, you'd have many varieties of wheat. So you could have up to 30 different varieties of grasses growing in the one field. And the reason we did that was because pesticides, herbicides, insecticides, none of that existed. Farming was very naturally organic. Um, And farmers followed a system called crop husbandry, uh, which basically means the farmer's relationship with the soil and his terroir. Um, And um, obviously, different insects uh, come every year. They, the soil changes. So, the reason for this mix of thirty, some cases more, was because they they fundamentally knew some grasses wouldn't produce anything and some would. So, when you milled flour back in the day, pre the industrial revolution, you were milling sometimes up to thirty varieties, um, mm-hmm. and that is fundamentally how our gut bacteria likes to eat. We love variety, um, but then. Definitely in the 70s and, and, and post-World War II, farming was all about yield, yield over quality. So pre-industrial, it was all about quality. Post, it was always about, all about quantity. And that that is, you know, very understandable. People were dying, like we needed to get food into people. So it was yield over quality at all cost. But uh, that system should have changed when the World War is finished and when people were nourished again and things became more stable unfortunately wasn't and then we had monoculture farming um but there's now um farms around the world and in particular around the uk that are now focused on this idea of crop husbandry again you know growing many varieties in their fields um and combine harvesting it all together and then of course the miller milling it all together and um, so it's becoming grain uh, management and farming is becoming more interesting again um mm. So uh, in terms of the grains, I would recommend, and by the way, I would never touch a grain that's not organic um, or not some form of heritage or ancient varieties. The ancient and heritage varieties of grain can dig down into the soil for about four metres. Monoculture wheat 
um, basically has no root system. And if something does not have a root system, it's not reaching into the fungi, it's not reaching into the minerals, the vitamins, the salts. Mm. So if you're not eating organically and if you're not eating heritage um, plants as well, you know, like your courgettes and everything, if you're not eating heritage varieties, you're just not giving your body and your immune system enough of a chance to um, be as nourished as as well as it could be otherwise. Um, and then on top of that, there's different ways of obviously processing food. So there's stone milling and then there's roller milling. Roller milling uses a steel roller mill that gets so hot, it burns the enzyme activity out of the grain. Stone milling does not get hot. It doesn't disturb the enzyme activity going on in the grain. In fact, it, it, it kind of enhances it. So choosing organic heritage ancient varieties that have gone through stone milling versus roller milling is really important. And that's why it's important to buy your flowers and your grains direct from millers, the farmers or good bakeries like E5 Bakehouse. Because yeah. if you're depending on a supermarket to curate the grain that's going into your stomach, it's the chances that it's been roller milled um, are very, very high. Mm. Um, the grains I recommend barley is grown very well in this country Hadmi Dodds is a great supplier of yeah. um, English grown uh, barley exactly <laughs> high in protein high in fibre brilliant in porridge brilliant through bread oats I think are just phenomenal um, einkorn is my favourite form of wheat which you can get from Gilchester's you can get it in its grain form and you can soak it at home in water and sprout it or get it in its flower form and, you know, put it through your scones. Just use it as a replacement to whatever else you're using currently to bake cakes with. Um, teff, of course. Um, and then I just think wheat in general is a phenomenal source of B vitamins. And I think any of your listeners at the moment experiencing anxiety or uh, go through bad periods or you know, don't think that their mental health is in a good place at the moment. I think looking at grain as a source of B vitamins can contribute to a healthier mind. Um, and just looking for those heritage tweets, those ancient tweets, and having an old Google, seeing where you can get them and incorporating them into your diet versus monoculture, you know, modern um modern wheat like throughout lockdown lots of people have been making pasta and stuff which is amazing mm, yeah but like and sourdough and sourdough and um, but I guess just be mindful of that double o flour you know yeah you're not going to make glossy pasta with like an einkorn flour but is it going to be better for you hell yeah mm. Mm. So I think not getting wound up on the aesthetics of food you know we get so wound up on our own aesthetics how we look do we have a flat stomach do we not I think the same applies to food the food that's a bit rougher on the edges is always better for you and with our bodies <laughs> oh my god like do you show off that tummy I've got a great tummy yeah. on <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> um let's talk a little bit about soil I, I feel like you could probably talk about soil for a very long time Karen but um and you touched on it a bit there about how how far down plants root themselves and what sort of interaction they have with one another um, and obviously that dramatically changes the food and and what we can grow from country to country and it's actually yeah. something I don't know that much about and I probably m- maybe like other people would just expect anything that you plant in soil to grow but obviously there's so much diversity in the soil in 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 the UK and globally. So um, 
and also the importance of eating some of that soil as well which probably to a lot of people will be like what you eat soil but um yeah can you just share share some insight on that for anyone like me who doesn't know that much about it the first thing to remember is that our food is just reconstituted soil Mm. I think if everyone just you know even Sarah in her classes if some people just sat with that as a thing to think about through their practice with you it's a good thing to focus on so you literally take a seed. So hopefully you've got some heirloom varieties of plants and heirloom being ancestral and and, and heirloom varieties are are varieties that have kind of come from your area. So let's take Sussex as an example. I live in Lawton in Sussex. So Lawton will have a different terroir to Chaley, which is up the road. And and, uh, let's take tomatoes, for example. So... um, I've got, I've been growing um, Marzano tomatoes here this year um, and I got my heirloom seed, my ancient ancestral seed from a very old, lovely lady in another part of Sussex. She's living in Hove um, and her seed did not do well here this year. In fact, it didn't, it didn't take off well at all. And, and that's obviously because it's just been producing plants and plants over and over again and cross-pollinating over so many decades um, in her soil and it got used to the nourishment there and it didn't have the same nourishment here and it just did not perform. Um, So that's why this idea of crop husbandry and, um, you know, uh, getting attuned and comfortable with what grows well in your area and what doesn't is is kind of a good thing to focus on. And it takes time. It takes years and years and years. I'm sure your listeners will seen uh, some Netflix documentaries over lockdown about farming and and the the number of years it takes any farmer or non-farmer to figure out the land they're in yeah um but if you just imagine for a minute a seed literally going into the ground and it becomes a carrot like that carrot has been surrounded by soil it's been surrounded by the minerals the vitamins the fungi the salts water sunlight etc etc have come in but all these elements that you see and don't see make that into a solid form, like a compound that you can hold in your hand and then put into your mouth and you can choose to wash it or not wash it. I think I was, you know, growing up at home in Cork in Ireland, like I never washed my lettuce because I fundamentally believed that like the dirt on it was as edible as the, the dirt it came from. Yeah, um, And I think if you eat in that way, you will have great immune health. You know, I never get sick. My immune health is very, very good. And I do believe that's from uh, not having an antibacterial approach to my life, you know, having a bacterial approach to my life. Yeah. Um, so I think if people can just sit with that fact alone, that our food is reconstituted soil. So whatever you put on it, if you are putting some weed killer on something outside or if you are going into a garden centre and you're buying a pack of tomato seed um, and you don't really know where those seeds have come from it's difficult to it's difficult to believe in that food it's it's difficult for that food to have the effect on you it would have if you were to find a neighbor who's been you know keeping a vegetable patch for decades and and has been doing so successfully so food is very like we are you know we're used to a British climate we go to a warm country and we're like, oh God, the first few days are really, really hot. But then we kind of get used to it because, you know, we're eating the olive oil. 
we're um, eating the bread, we're drinking the wine, and then we kind of like settle into the environment. But there is those few days where uh, we feel a bit out of sorts and that's because we're a seed in a new environment trying yeah. to see if we can live off that new environment or not. And maybe some people, you know, when they travel abroad or they intend to move somewhere new, it's like me coming down to Sussex, I'm coming into a new environment, I'm drinking new water, I am breathing in different air, I'm washing in water that's got different stuff in it. Yeah. And that's going to have a good effect on me or a bad effect on me. And yeah, I, I think, yeah, we're very, very comparable to plants. Like, so my dad and his business, sometimes his customers would ring him up and they'd be like, oh geez, Brendan, that beech tree hasn't worked at all in that area. It's just, it's dead. It looks like it's not alive. And my dad would have to figure out another part of the garden that would enhance its life. So it's all about like, you know, we're, we're, we're just so comparable. So I'm very long-winded. We're very comparable to a seed. I think, yeah. you know, you can, everything's a metaphor for everything else. Yeah. I actually said this in our last recording, Karen, I said, we're basically plants. I can't even remember what we're talking about now, but I mean, it's the same logic. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think when you think in that way, you have a greater respect of, for the land around you, the animals, the, the everything. And, and it's, course, it's much yeah. easier to make um, decisions that look to be simple. Like I think a lot of my older clients, you know, that are in their 60s and stuff, understandably they've had children, they're retired now, and they're just in some cases tired of preparing food. But actually through the work we do together, they fall in love with food preparation again because they're like, well, food keeps me alive. So therefore it's not a simple decision. What I have for lunch actually isn't a simple decision at all. It does deserve thought and I shouldn't be made feel bad or myself feel bad for, you know, giving that more time than maybe yeah. I do my, my own work that brings in my income. Yeah, very true. Such a nice point. I could just hear your dog in the background, which know, is sorry, so fitting you. because, no, it's perfect because he is part of the next question. Okay. Can you remember what you told us your healthy habit was? Yes, I can indeed. Swimming with Biggie Smalls in the sea as much <laughs> as possible. He is is that him we could hear? He is. He's like a cockapoo, black and white, oh. and absolutely adores humans. Not so up for dog company, but loves <laughs> human company oh biggie smalls what a name he is great <laughs> and he does love the big i must say he does love his human <laughs> so tell us about your healthy habit then karen because this has been um probably the one that most guests in this year have have given us okay um yeah so i guess for me I'm not sure a few ladies relate, but I think the older I get, my movement has changed. I think my movement just is how I, you know, I, you know, I obviously make a lot of bread. I use my arms a lot, um, walk around the garden, walk the dog, all that kind of stuff. I think I'm, if I were to go into a fitness studio now, um, as a seed, I would not do well. Um, I would need to be moved. So for me, the sea, I'm an Aquarian. I'm very much a water baby. Um, and yeah, I'll, I'll try and go early in the morning or late in the evening once I finish my day. And it's just cathartic, just like swimming out to the boy and back with Biggie. You know, the sun is setting on the horizon and it's, you've just got all these mineral salts going into you. And it's just, I don't know, it's my breath work, it's my meditation. Yeah. It just makes me feel safe, but also vulnerable. I think the sea is a really vulnerable place and 
what's in it and what's around us and yeah I don't know I think it's it's nice to feel safe in something but also vulnerable it kind of reminds me what it is to be human and I I always sleep better having been for a swim Mm, yeah I can I can tap that as well absolutely and swimming in the sea is so different from swimming in a pool I don't really understand people who go on holiday and then want to be by the pool I would always rather be by the sea me too. I know. And also you have to work so much harder in a pool. Like you just float <laughs> in the falls. I'm like, oh my God, I do so much swimming. And then I go into a pool and I'm like, whoa, I do not do so much swimming. I'm really struggling <laughs> here. I'm not good at all. My boyfriend is convinced that he um he can't float in the sea. Um, ah. so I, every time we go we go in together I try and you know teach him teach him to float and he's like no nope, I just sink I just sink oh bless <laughs> him so he doesn't love it so much but maybe innately his body's protecting his ears from clogging up with water maybe <laughs> but they say that. don't they that the a swim in the sea is the cure for anything a hangover heartbreak whatever it is swim in the sea always makes you feel better Oh, definitely. It's just so relaxing. Yeah. Like yeah, almost best. like a light version of ayahuasca. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Get everything in. Well, Sarah and I are both hoping to be by the sea next week. Next week from recording, not from the podcast going out. So we will be thinking of you whilst we're both in the sea. Yeah. Oh, nice one, Serena. Seeing as though this is probably the fifth Fifth swimming in the sea, healthy habits, Serena. What do you reckon? Fourth? Yeah, we've had a lot of outdoor swimming healthy yeah. habits. So it's such a good one. It's such a good one. Such a good one. Or maybe we're just attracting guests that um yeah. all, all want to do the same. We're all <laughs> equally like-minded. Karen, it's been such a joy to have you on. Oh, thanks, Sarah. It's been great speaking with you ladies. You're thank you say- so much for making the time for us. We've yeah. loved it. Definitely. And I must say, um, like the work that you ladies are doing for men and women, like across the British community and obviously further abroad through the apps and everything you're on is just incredible. Like I, I really like, I just admire you both so much and the work you're doing. So thank you for doing it. Oh, that is so oh, lovely. Thank you. Thank you. The feeling is very much mutual. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll, I, I can't wait to come and visit you, Karen. We're going to have to arrange it when we're, when we can. Definitely, Sarah. Well, look, I'll welcome you with open arms. I'll have the natural wine on, the sourdough in the oven, and the golden cross cheese in. We'll have to import some epic olive oil from Mallorca or something. Yes, yes. Oh, thank you so much, Karen. Have a really wonderful day. Legend, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Oh, thank you so much, Karen. What an absolutely incredible woman. I feel like I just want to be around her all the time to absorb her knowledge. I just, I can't even comprehend how she can know so much about it all. I mean, that's just a testament to her upbringing, but wow, wow, wow. Yeah, she's amazing. And what a dreamy accent as well. I know. Can she just (laughs) soothe us to sleep? I'd love that. (laughs) If you'd like the recipe for today's episode, you can find it over on our Patreon page, which we'll leave the link for in the show notes below, alongside Karen's details. Sarah and I are definitely going to be heading to Sussex soon to visit the bakery school, so maybe we'll see you there. 
And one last thing, Karen has very kindly given us a list of all of the bakeries, the mills, the farms that she suggests buying your grains from. So we'll leave those in the show notes as well. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.